0: Today we are continuing our study through the book of Matthew, and so we're going to pick up where we left off in chapter 17, and we're going to look to cover the whole rest of the chapter. And so we're going to pray that's what the Lord has for us at least, okay? Uh, And so because we've got a lot to go through, we're going to jump right in, okay? So if you have your Bibles with you, make your way to Matthew chapter 17. I'm going to read uh, verses 14 through 21 to get us started, but as I mentioned, I do hope to get to the end of the chapter this morning. And so, uh, will you please stand as we read this morning's uh, opening portion of Scripture. Matthew chapter 17, verses 14 through 21. Verse 14 begins, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to Him, kneeling down to Him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him. And the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief, for assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Verse 21, however, this kind goes, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this morning, the blessing that it is to gather and to spend time in Your Word. And we pray that as we go through Your Word, that You would lead and guide us. Father, that we would understand the intent of Your Word, the um, application of Your Word to our lives. And Father, that You would continue that work that you've begun in each and every one of us. Lord, I know that we all come with different needs, and we all come dealing with different situations in life, and I know and trust that you want to minister to each and every one of us here this morning. And so, Lord, give to us in an excitement, give to us an anticipation that you are going to speak to us this morning. And so, Father, we look forward to all that you have for us. And pray that we would just receive it gladly and uh, with a, a joyful heart. And so, Father, lead and guide our time. We submit it and surrender it to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys may have a seat. As we uh, dive into today's uh, portion, we're going to be referencing the gospel account of Mark. Uh, a lot uh, as well as we go through and look at Matthew chapter 17. Uh, Mark's account of the events that took place as Jesus and the disciples came down the mountain, they give to us a a little bit more detail and they give to us specifics that we just don't find in Matthew's account. And so uh, Mark's account of this portion is found in Mark chapter 9 verses 14 through 29. Um, And so if you guys want to flip there and kind of look back and forth, keep one finger in Matthew and another in Mark, I encourage you to do that. Uh, We won't go and read all of Mark, but as I said, I will reference it often. Okay? Matthew's account, it tells us that there was a multitude there uh, at the bottom of the mountain, but it doesn't tell us who the multitude's made up of or why they are gathered there together in the first place. Mark's account, however, tells us that the multitude was made up of the other disciples that didn't go up on the mountain. Recall, we've been making our way through Matthew chapter 17, and Jesus had taken Peter, James, and John up onto the mountain, uh, apart from the, uh, the rest of the disciples. And there on the mountain, uh, he was transfigured. It was an incredible, an incredible event for those three disciples to be a part of. Well, the, the other nine disciples, they're still at the bottom of the hill. And so they're there. Um, also, we're told that there are some scribes that are there. Uh, and that there is also a, an unknown, mixed crowd of people. Also, from Mark's account, we find out that the scribes, they were actually disputing with the disciples. Okay? They were exchanging words. They were arguing uh, with each other. In, far, in fact, Mark's account, uh, Jesus actually asked what they were disputing, and, and that's when the man approached Jesus to explain the situation regarding his son. So Jesus had kind of gone in and said, what are you guys fighting about? What's going on here? And, and enter this father uh, telling the situation about his son. Based upon what the man says about his son's situation, I think that it's safe to assume that the scribes were disputing with the disciples based upon their inability to cure this man's son. I imagine that the scribes were trying to use this as evidence to discredit uh, not only the the ministry of the disciples, but in a larger part, probably even to discredit Jesus' ministry as they were seen as uh, disciples of Jesus. He was their teacher. And so I imagine the scribes were there. As we've seen, uh, the scribes have really come uh, hard against Jesus as we've been going through the, the gospel account of Matthew. And so we see they're fighting and they're arguing. And it's very likely based upon the fact that these scribes uh, were basically trying to uh, speak out against them uh, on their lack of uh, ability to cure this man's son. Okay? Matthew's account, it tells us that the boy was an epileptic okay? that suffered severely and on several occasions had fallen into both the fire and the water. The Greek word for epileptic uh, means to be moonstruck. And uh, Or it can be mean to be a lunatic. And so it's interesting that we use the word lunatic or we use the word lunacy to describe someone or something that is crazy or insane. Luna is actually the Latin root of the word moon. And so we have this idea, this connection to the moon, and it's a little bit weird. And so I want to be able to explain that a little bit. Back in those days... The symptoms associated with epilepsy were believed to become more aggravated during certain lunar periods. Okay? And so based upon that, um, and the, the Greek word used to describe someone that was epileptic was tied to the idea or, or notion that uh, being influenced by the moon, and so they would be called a lunatic or they would be called uh, epileptic, what well, we call them is epileptic today. Okay, And so in your Bible translation as you read, actually some of the, the translations say that he was a lunatic. I think the King James, the NASB says he was a lunatic. It doesn't say he was epileptic. While others simply say that he suffered from seizures. I think the NIV, the NLT, the Home uh, and Christian Standard Bible that just says he uh, was a, uh, suffered from seizures. And so the idea is he, he suffered from seizures, seizures, maybe it was connected to the moon, and maybe it was epilepsy. There's, there's not a great uh, consensus. Something to do with the moon, and it was believed that those symptoms were associated together with epilepsy. Okay, as we read the word epilepsy, I want to caution you from concluding with certainty that it is the same thing that we think of when we speak of epilepsy today. Okay? Uh, ep- epilepsy today is known as a, a neurological disorder that's uh, most often associated with the recurring, unprovoked seizures. Okay? It's sometimes referred to as a seizure disorder. And so, uh, although this boy does suffer from recurring seizures, uh, it does not mean that certainly that he had the medical condition of epilepsy, because we know that part of it is that there's unprovoked seizures, and and we're going to find out that these weren't necessarily unprovoked situations that were happening in here, uh, in this boy's life. And I I know, I think this goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways, Uh, you know, Just because someone may be epileptic today, and and, we read in our scripture that this person was epileptic and associated with demon possession, that just because someone's epileptic... has seizures, okay? Doesn't mean that they're they're demon possessed, okay? I think that goes without saying, but I'll say it anyways, okay? Uh, we don't want to make, obviously, don't draw that conclusion, okay? So let's look at this situation here. Uh, again, Mark's account gives us more info regarding this boy's condition. In Mark's account, we are told that the boy was possessed by a mute spirit, a demon. And that it was the demon that would actually seize him and throw him into the fire and into the water. And it actually says with a desire to destroy his life. And so... um also, uh, not only would the demon seize him and throw him down in the fire and the water, but also would cause the boy to you know, throw himself down on the ground. Foam at the mouth, it tells us in Mark's Gospel, that he would gnash uh, with his teeth. And finally, at the, at the end of the seizure, he would just become very rigid. He'd become stiff, kind of like uh, a, a dead body with a rigor mortis starting to set in, just stiff as can be. And, and so, uh, Mark's account, we note that there is just... A lot more than just epilepsy that was going on in this boy's life and in his body. Okay? Perhaps he was epileptic and demon-possessed. Okay? Uh, that's very possible that he, he suffered from epilepsy and the demon used that uh, to manipulate. Okay? But it's even possible that this boy wasn't epileptic at all. But that just merely appeared to suffer from such based upon the attacks of the demon within him. Again, the idea there, uh, the root words, is just it, talking about the moon. And so whether or not that means epilepsy was based upon what they believed about epilepsy back at that time. I believe that the boy probably was both epileptic and demon-possessed. The reason I believe that is because uh, based upon the fact that Jesus, when he cast out the demon from the boy, it tells us that he not only cast out the boy, but he also cured the boy, which to me it suggests that he maybe had a medical condition of some kind. Perhaps it was a casting out of the demon as well as a healing from epilepsy. And so we... uh, Based upon that, I kind of lean more towards that. It doesn't really matter all that much whether or not he was. Okay? The boy, whether he was epileptic or not, uh, was certainly suffering. He was suffering greatly at the hands of a demonic spirit. And we're told that the father of this boy brought his son to the disciples to be healed, but that they could not cure him. Okay? Again, at Mark's Gospel, as you look back at that, it actually informs us that the Father was actually seeking Jesus, brought His Son with the hopes to bring Him to Jesus. But as we know, Jesus, He comes to the disciples, and Jesus isn't there. He's up on the mountain. Okay? And so He asks the disciples to heal Him. Okay? Um, I believe there is a good lesson here for us to learn, and especially for those of us who are our parents. As we look at this, we we realize that the father, he realized that his son was in great need of help. And I believe he did a very wise thing. He brought his son to Jesus. For those of us who are parents, uh, you know, we've been given a a very precious gift from the Lord. And and with that gift, I believe, comes a, a great responsibility to bring our children to the Lord. You know, we do that in different ways. We do that by praying for them, uh, by talking to them about the Lord and the things of the Lord, uh, by bringing them to to church, by teaching them the Word of God, and by exampling for them what it looks like to live a life that glorifies and honors Christ. And I think it's a point that I, you know, would like to just make here. It's just that our kids need us to bring them to the Lord. Okay? I don't don't think... Please don't think that you can passively bring up your children and expect them to follow the Lord just because you do. You need to be actively engaging your children, bringing them to the Lord in whatever means possible. I, I'm not saying that this of this church, but I know some friends that go to church back in the States, and a lot of people there just kind of feel like, oh, I am just I just drop them off at youth group, or I just drop them off and that's my duty. And You have a much larger responsibility than that mom and dad. Okay, you need to be bringing up your children in the ways of the Lord. You need to be training them as uh, Psalms, uh, excuse me, um, Proverbs twenty two six speaks about how we're to train up our children. Not training is is daily, right? You guys, a lot of you military people, you got to train, right? That's not something that you just act, uh, passively do. That is something that's active. And so I want to encourage you guys to be bringing your children to the Lord. Okay, this father knew his son needed help, and he brought him to the Lord. Unfortunately for this man and his son, the disciples were not able to cast out the demon. And it's interesting to note that because previously these disciples were given the power to cast out demons. Back in Matthew chapter 10, when Jesus sent out the twelve, you guys remember, He gave to them the ability to cast out demons along with other abilities to uh, heal sick people and and to heal diseases, to cleanse lepers, and they went out. In fact, Mark chapter 6 verse 13 tells us that when the twelve went out and preached repentance, that they cast out many demons. And so this is something that the disciples have been able to do previously on their own as they were sent out. And so it's interesting to note here. Why could they not cast out the demon this time? It was something they had done before many times, in fact. Why, or excuse me, what was it that was different this time around? Let's look and see what Jesus had to say. Let's look at verse 17 and 18. Again, we'll read, says, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured from that very hour. Jesus shares some harsh words here in response to the Father's explanation of the situation. Some have speculated as to who specifically were these words directed towards? Okay. Some have said, based upon the reading from Mark, that he was simply speaking to the Father because he says this, these words uh, in exchange, a conversation when he's talking to the Father. And so, some people say, "Oh, it's the Father, and he doesn't—he's that uh, faithless, perverse uh, guy." Others suggest that it was the disciples that the Lord was directing these words towards. Okay, later on, he's going to continue and he's going to talk to them about why they couldn't do this, and they're not favorable words as well okay and still, others, they wonder if maybe the scribes were at least part of the intended target. Here they are, they're supposed to be the religious leaders, those who are um, representing the Lord and His word, and yet here they are, just a, a perverse generation. They're there arguing with the disciples, all the while they're arguing. This boy is still being tortured and tormented by this demon. They can't do anything, but they sure are excited to uh, point out that the disciples can't do anything either. And so So maybe some have said that maybe the scribes were intended. I'm under the persuasion that these words were directed to the entire multitude. To include the Father, to include the disciples, to include the scribes, and everyone else that was around. After all, Jesus really does indict the entire generation, which would include all those that were there that day. And so Jesus, it's interesting, interesting, He described the generation in two ways. He called them faithless, and he called them perverse. Faithless speaks of unbelief. Okay? The, the people lacked faith to believe. Perverse, it actually speaks of a, of a churning. If you look up that word in the original Greek, the idea is that the, the generation has been churned from the truth and the ways of the Lord, and it speaks of also being misled. And so we see here, with this understanding, we more readily understand the words that Jesus shares right afterwards. The generation of people, they they lack faith because they've been churned from the true ways of following the Lord. They've been misled. And that's why Jesus then asked, How long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? He had been with them for a, a couple years now. Ministering and, and going around. And we haven't, uh, why haven't they churned from their unbelief? Why have they continued to allow people like the scribes and the Pharisees to mislead them and to pervert their relationship in the Lord? Jesus didn't have much more time with them to turn them back to true faith and belief in the Lord, what it meant to really follow the Lord. And so we see it's this idea like, Man, I, I've been with you for a while and I don't have much more to Why? What's the deal, guys, this faithless and perverse generation? You know, I, I think it can be easy to, to point the finger at those guys and say something along the lines of, you know, come on, guys. You know, you've been walking with the Lord now for a couple years. You've seen Him do incredible things, uh, miracles. Uh, you've been... Uh, just You should be pillars of faith by now. You guys should be you know, doing all sorts of great things for the Lord. And, and I think as we look at that, we, we kind of have that expectation for the disciples, right? We kind of think, man, you guys have seen and witnessed incredible things. And, and how could you, of all people, have lack of faith? And you've been with them for so long. But But I want to caution us, before we look at them with a judgmental attitude, I wonder if the Lord may have similar words for our generation. How long have we been walking with the Lord, and yet we're still struggling with unbelief? We still lack power to live for Him, and to do great things for Him. And I wonder if we have allowed ourselves to be misled, to be perverted, to have our ways churned, into thinking that that following the Lord simply means coming to church on Sunday and and praying before our meals uh, and maybe praying before we go to bed. And that's what it means to be a a Christian. I I believe it's important that we take inventory of our own life and our own faith. Are we struggling with unbelief? Are are we allowing ourselves to be perverted, misled, churned and swayed away from what it really means to live for the Lord? And, And we need to be honest with ourselves. And we need to be sincere. What does our faith look like? Does it look like what it's supposed to look like? Does it look like what we read of within the Scriptures of what it means to follow the Lord and to live in the power and grace of the Lord and the forgiveness of the Lord? Does our life mirror what it looks like here in the Scriptures? Are we living out our faith in a way that is having an impact upon the world around us? That's what I see. You look at the New Testament, you see all sorts of different disciplines and people doing all sorts of different things but all of them were impacting the people around them for the kingdom of god and i think we need to be able to look at our lives and say lord have my ways has my faith been perverted am i having an impact in the world am i having an impact for your kingdom in my life This generation of people before the Lord, they were lacking faith. And they had been churned from the ways of the Lord. And I believe that we need to take inventory in our life and make sure that we are not in the same boat as them. Jesus requested that the boy be brought to him and we're told that Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the little boy uh, was cured. Hey, Mark's Gospel actually gives a whole lot more details as to what transpired after Jesus called the boy to him. Uh, according to Mark's account, as the boy was being brought before Jesus, the demon, in one last ditch effort to destroy this boy, the demon convulsed the boy, causing him to fall on the ground, to foam at the mouth And when Jesus saw this, he actually asked the father, how long this has been happening to this boy? And and the father replied, from childhood. And then the father added these words to Jesus uh, in Mark chapter 9, verse 22. The father says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. This man, he was, he was in desperate need for Jesus to show up in a very big and powerful way. Okay? His son has been tortured by this demon since childhood. Now, we don't know how old the boy was, but we have to at least assume, I think we can safely assume, that this is probably even happening for a couple years at least, that this demon has been torturing him in such a manner. And the father came to him and he said, If... You can do anything. Have compassion on us. And I just love how Jesus responded to the Father in Mark chapter 9, verse 23, because this is what Jesus said. He said, If you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. The Father said, If you can do anything, and Jesus responded, If you can believe. All things are possible to him who believes. You know, this man came with doubts. He, he came with wonders about what Jesus could do, if you can do anything, he said. He was not completely confident in Jesus' ability. And, and I believe Jesus, in a very loving, yet challenging way, he responds to him as if to say, Hey, guy, I'm not limited. All things are possible. I can do anything. Can you do this one thing and believe? You know, the the father... I love his response as well. The father knowing that he could not hide his doubts from the Lord, with tears running down his face, he cried out to the Lord honestly and sincerely, and he declared, Lord, I believe... Help my unbelief. Here here the father admittedly confesses that he has belief. I I do believe. But that, that he also has unbelief. And that he needs the Lord's help to deal with that unbelief. You know, the amazing thing here is that the Lord, He responds to this man's faith. He, he, he responds by healing his son. You see, this man, he didn't have to have you know, complete faith. He didn't have to have uh, everything figure out. He had to, in faith, acknowledge his own shortcomings and, and seek God's help with them. You know, I believe the Lord still operates in the same way. Maybe we are like this man, and we believe. You know, but sometimes we struggle with unbelief. Sometimes we have doubt. Sometimes we wonder. I know that for myself. I often pray, and I pray, you know, I'm praying Scripture, I'm praying, I feel like, man, this has got to be Your will. But then sometimes I feel like, Lord, I hope this is Your will. I, I want to believe this is Your will, but I'm not so sure if this is what Your plan is. And so sometimes I can be, sometimes I allow doubt, maybe unbelief to kind of creep in, and I don't know if this is Your will. And And so we see here, that sometimes that can, we can be like that. That we believe, but we also struggle with unbelief. And I believe we see here an example that we need to follow. We need to be willing to acknowledge our doubts to the Lord and, and seek His help in overcoming them. That's what this father did. He said, I believe, help me with my unbelief. Okay, And he realized that I, I struggle and I have doubts. And Jesus doesn't say, well, go away and come back when you've got it all figured out. And when you really believe, then I'll answer. He responded to that kind of faith. And I believe when we are willing to do that, when we are willing to, to acknowledge our doubts to the Lord, say, Lord, this is where I'm at. This is where I'm struggling. And I need your help to overcome. I, I believe God will answer, and He will show Himself to be faithful and trustworthy in those situations. Let's continue. Verse 19, He says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly, I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. After Jesus and the disciples had gotten away from the multitudes, the disciples came to Jesus privately. And they wanted to know why they were not able to cast out the demon. And Jesus, very plainly, He didn't mix words at all with the disciples. Uh, Very plainly, He said, The reason they could not cast out the demon was because of their unbelief. The disciples had previously been able to cast out demons, but they had now allowed unbelief to creep in, to rob them of the power of God to heal this man's son. Jesus said, "If, if they had faith as a mustard seed, they would be able to move mountains." What is faith? What is faith as a mustard seed? Okay? Most of you guys know we've looked at uh, the parable of the mustard seed, and we noted how the mustard seed is very tiny. It is very, very small.? Okay? And so Jesus is saying, uh, the mustard seed is so tiny. And oftentimes the, it's, uh, the mustard seed would be referenced as a proverbial phrase, meaning just, just the least amount, okay? Just the smallest particle, just a little tiny bit is what you need. The idea here being that if they had just the smallest particle of belief, that they would be able to, to move mountains, Okay. The the notion of moving mountains was not that that you and I would try to rearrange the physical landscape and say, Well, I want to move that mountain over here and I want to make some, you know, ocean front property in the front of my house. You know, that's not the idea here of moving mountains if we just believe we're gonna move mountains. I, I believe Jesus was using Uh, this idea um, to, to show that even with the smallest amount of faith that we would be able to do incredible feats such as move mountains. And I don't think Jesus was thinking necessarily about physical mountains as much as He was relating to the idea of the mountains that we face as obstacles in our walk with the Lord. We encounter mountains sometimes. Obstacles in our path. And if we would just have the smallest of faith, we would be able to cast that aside and we would be able to continue on. And I believe the lesson really does teach us that no obstacle should be able to stand before a confessing faith in Christ. Now, before we continue looking at the last verse of this section, I want to pause for a second and give to you a little bit of info regarding the Bible that you have in your hand. Some of you guys have digital Bible in front of you, so you can actually have multiple translations in your hand. Okay. For some of you, the Bible you are reading does not have verse 21 in it. Okay? Anybody? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you guys are like... Pastor Glenn is weird, he's reading into something. I, I, okay, let me explain, okay? I want to uh, clearly, uh, but at the same time, briefly explain to you why this is. Okay? A brief and very simple overview of where your Bible came from. Okay? As most of you are probably aware, the Bible was not originally penned in English. There are some that think the King James Version was the what Moses was given on the Ten Commandments, but that is not true. Okay? The Bible was originally written, the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, okay? uh, and actually some Aramaic. Okay? And the New Testament was originally penned in Greek. Okay? And, and so there are no originals of the actual letters and accounts of the books that make up the Bible. What I mean by that, for example, is that Matthew's account that he penned under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is not available to us today. That original writing that Matthew did. The best that we have to go off of are copies of the originals that have been copied over and over and over again throughout history. Copies of copies Okay, so we we won't go into all the details, but if this is something that interests you, okay, come talk to me at the picnic because my studies this week were really fascinating. I got all into, you know, when the first English Bible was written and the whole situation with the Roman Catholic Church and the uh, Reformation, and it was really really an interesting study. And so, if you want to talk more about it, we will. But just a very simple overview here. Okay, looking at just the New Testament for our time here. Um, The variations that we have within the English Bible have to do with the different source texts that were used to translate the Bible. There are two main text types that are used to formulate pretty much every English translation translation that is out there. The Alexandrian text and the Byzantine text. As it turns out, the Alexandrian texts are by and large shorter than the Byzantine text. And so the problem is, we don't know if the Alexandrian texts are missing verses or if the Byzantine text had verses added to it. All we know, what we do know, is that there are a few verses that aren't found in the Alexandrian text that are found in the Byzantine text. Okay? Now, the Alexandrian text, which come from Egypt, they represent about 5% of the New Testament manuscripts that have been found and, and verified. And while the other 95% of the New Testament texts that we have in the original Greek, they come from the Byzantine text, okay, which comes from the area of Antioch, present-day Turkey, southern Turkey. Okay? Some look uh, at this and they think, well, we should obviously use the one that we have the most of because we can compare them and see that for the most part that they completely agree, and so there's a, a confidence that they would agree with the originals as well. If we have all of these manuscripts, and they all pretty much say the same exact thing. They all must have come from the same source, and it's you know use that as evidence that it's closest to the originals. However, the Alexandrian texts that we do have, they are much older, by a few centuries, than the oldest Byzantine texts. And so some look at this info and they think these must be the closest and most accurate to the originals because they had had less time to get messed up through the many copies that would have to be made. Remember the copies and copies of copies of copies? Kind of like the telephone game. You've played the telephone game before, right? The more and more something's transmitted, the more likely that you're going to get the message mixed up along the way. And so you really have two different schools of thought in regards to which manuscripts are best. Some say go with what we have the most of, while others say we should go with the oldest ones that we have. Okay, Again, this is a, a very general overview. Okay, There's more than just that, but I, I do want to go to the picnic sometime this afternoon. And so, we'll leave it for that now. Today, if your Bible has verse 21 in it, it's probably because it is based upon the Byzantine text. Okay, If you don't have verse 21, it is because your translation is based upon the... Alexandrian text. Okay, simple as that. I do want to clarify as well that none of the Alexandrian or Byzantine texts vary when uh, uh, on foundational matters of our faith. Okay, it's not like one says Jesus died on the cross and the other one says no, he really didn't die on the cross at all. Okay, the the, the differences are very minuscule. Okay, uh, we're talking. <laughs> My wife. I love her. (laughs) She's not going to let that one down for a while. (laughs) Okay. um, Some of what I read... Uh, and I was studying and looking at that actually say the text actually agree something like 90% of the time. If you look at the, these texts and you compare them, you know, and really there's just a few verses that are missing or a few verses that have been added based on which camp you want to stake your tent on or your flag on. Okay. And so... But for the most part, you know, a few words here or there that are slightly different. Okay? Whether your Bible uses the Alexandrian text or the Byzantine text, you know, it isn't as important as whether or not you read the Bible and read your Bible. I've always said that the best Bible to use is the one you're going to read. Okay? I do give one caveat when I say that, though. I would strongly recommend and I would say do not read the NWT, okay, the New World Translation. That Bible is, is not a translation uh, that is good. It's actually the translation that the Jehovah's Witness used for them and them alone. It, Jehovah's Witness went and changed verses to formulate and you know, with Bible discrepancies that had caused them problems with what their belief, they just went and modified it so that it didn't become a problem anymore. So I would say do not read the NWT, the New World Translation Bible. And there's some other ones that are out there. Uh, but for the most part, you're pretty safe. Okay? If you've got a Bible, NIV, NASB, New King James, uh, King James ESV, just read it. Okay? Whatever it is, just read it and, and, and follow its teachings. Okay? You'll be just fine if you do that. All right, so I want to look at verse 21, even though some of you don't have it in your Bibles, but you may have it in your footnotes, okay? And so you might want to look down there into the fine print because I think there's something important that we find here. Jesus said, However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Previously, Jesus said the reason that they couldn't cast out the demon was because of their unbelief. But here he says that those kind of demons don't go out except by prayer and fasting. So was it because they didn't believe Or was it because they didn't pray and fast? Here's what I believe the point is that Jesus is getting across. Praying and fasting, they are spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines that increase our faith. John Corson, a favorite Bible teacher of mine, had this to say about prayer and fasting. He said, prayer attaches us to the Father... Fasting detaches us from the flesh. And I like that. Okay? Prayer is our connection to God. And, and fasting is a means by which we, we uh, detach ourselves from the flesh and its passions. And so the disciples, you know, as they hear Jesus say, Oh, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. They could have been thinking to themselves, "You know, This kind only goes out by prayer and fasting. How are we to know that? You know? You know, that's kind of unfair to, you know, throw us in with this group, Jesus, and tell us, you know, kind of rebuke us. How are we to know? Okay, how would we know that, that this guy is going to bring to us that kind of demon? And so, you know, we didn't even have time to pray and fast. And therein lies the point, I believe, that Jesus is trying to make. Prayer and fasting shouldn't be something we do only in emergency situations when we need it. If you wait to pray and fast until you're in an emergency situation, you probably won't have time to pray and fast. Jesus is calling these men to a lifestyle of prayer. And fasting, so that when those situations pop up, they'll already be prepared. Their faith has been developed, it has been strengthened. And I believe the Lord would encourage us to do the same. That we should be developing a lifestyle of prayer and fasting. You know, this is something the Lord's been showing fair and I, and we've been uh, talking about spending more time in prayer and fasting to, to strengthen and develop our faith and connection to the Lord. And, and I want to encourage you guys to do the same, to set aside some time to pray, to connect to the Father. And at the same time, do some sort of fasting to detach yourself from the flesh. There's all sorts of different fasts. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to starve yourself uh, for a week and not eat anything. Hey, there's uh, Daniel fasts. You can do all sorts of different types of fasts. The idea is that you're denying yourself something uh, uh, that gives pleasure to the flesh. And you say, I'm going to deny that, and instead I'm going to seek the Lord. And so we ought to be developing a lifestyle of that. Okay? So that when those situations do pop up, when we're like lord i need you now our faith has already been tested our faith has already been developed it's already been strengthened because we've been in prayer we've been in prayer and we've had that strong connection to the lord and we're ready and so i want to encourage you guys to do the same Let's look at verse 22 and 23. It says, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And the third day He will be rise, He will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Once again, we have Jesus reminding the disciples about the mission that He was on. Okay, This is not the first time that He has told His disciples that uh, this, and it won't be the last. Okay, the, the first time was when Peter, you remember, he properly... Jesus Christ as, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And and, and he says, Okay, that's great. Don't tell anybody. And he reminds them at that time, Hey, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be handed over. I'm going to die. But I'm going to rise. Here it follows the events of the Mount of Transfiguration and this healing of this uh, tortured, uh, demon-possessed boy. And he'll mention it again in chapter 20. We won't go into all the details of it. We've already done that before. Jesus wanted to make it very clear to his disciples of what lied ahead of Him. And so, we'll see Him constantly reminding them. I do find one thing interesting as we look at this. There at the end of verse 23, we see that the disciples were exceedingly sorrowful. And I wonder, I wonder if they really heard everything Jesus had to say. I wonder if if they stopped listening after He said He was going to be betrayed and killed. And they didn't notice the part about rising up. Okay? I hear uh, from my wife that there are actually some guys that have that problem, that, that they have something called selective hearing. And, and so they can start to hear something that they don't like, and then they can just stop hearing it. It's quite amazing. Um, and I wonder if that was the case for these guys. Hey, they just started tuning Jesus out when He started talking about being betrayed and killed. They obviously uh, either didn't hear Him or didn't listen to Him or, or they just didn't understand Him when He told them and He spoke about the resurrection, he raised that He would be raised up. And, and so they were sorrowful. Let's continue. Verse 24-27, through 27, we'll finish. Up. When they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And he said, Yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him, saying, What do you think, Simon? From who do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, From strangers. Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you have opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Here we read about an interesting situation that takes place in Capernaum involving whether or not Jesus paid a temple tax. The temple tax was a tax that was began back in the days of Moses, when he commanded every Israelite twenty years and over to pay an annual, what they called the dead time, a ransom, an annual ransom uh, equivalent to half a shekel. It's kind of like a one day's wage uh, annual tax. It was a flat annual tax. Everyone was required to pay. The rich were specifically said not to give any more. The poor were specifically told that they could not give anything less. Everyone gives the same amount, this flat tax. Before... There was a temple. The money was set aside and appointed for the service of the tabernacle. Uh, you can read about all this in Exodus chapter 30, uh, verses 13 through 16. It tells all about the temple tax. Okay? Here in Jesus' day, it was used for the service of the temple. Okay? One of the temple tax collectors, he came to Peter and asked if Jesus paid the temple tax, which Peter said, yeah. I imagine, kind of like, yeah, of course he pays the temple tax. There goes Peter, inserting his mouth into his foot, uh, foot into his mouth again. Uh, and so let's see what Jesus actually had to say to Peter about this temple tax. Uh, Peter, he came back to the house. He entered in, and Jesus didn't even let him speak before addressing the issue. You know, I found that interesting too. Peter gets interrupted a lot. You know, early in chapter 17, you guys remember, he's talking. He's like, let's build three tabernacles. And then the father's voice comes out, hey, you know. This is my son, you know, hear him. And then here he comes into the house and before he even gets a word out, Jesus says, hey, hey, Simon Peter, what do you think about taxes? And, and asks him these questions. I just find it interesting and funny. Um, he asked them a question about who kings take taxes from. Do the kings take taxes from their sons or, or from strangers? The idea is you know, from the people from his land. Uh, and, and this was an easy one for Peter. He quickly responded by saying, well, from strangers. Jesus then concluded that the sons then are free. And Jesus was showing Peter that if kings don't take taxes from their sons, that he, as the Son of God, was free from paying the temple tax. It's as if Jesus was saying, this is a tax for upholding my father's house. And as his son, then that tax is not due by me. I am free. I am the Son of God. The tax is to keep God's house going God is not going to tax me. I'm His Son. And and Jesus could have left it at that and not paid the tax. Positionally, He had the right not to pay the tax, and so He could have simply not paid. But I find it interesting what He does. That's not what He does. Verse 27, it begins, Nevertheless, lest we offend them, Jesus, even though He had the right to not pay in order to not to offend them, he was going to go ahead and pay the tax. I find this interesting. Because previously, Jesus never seemed to be too concerned about offending the religious elites. Okay? Uh, in fact, uh, in our own study of the book of Matthew, we recall that the disciples actually came to Jesus and they told them that he had offended the Pharisees when he spoke about, remember, the traditions of man and the ceremonially uh, washing of hands. And they said, hey, you really offended the Pharisees by what you said. And, and Jesus, you guys remember what he replied? He said, let them alone. They're blind leaders of the blind. You know, and it's like uh, he really didn't care if he was offending those guys. Why the different treatment? We don't know for sure. Perhaps it was because previously they were dealing with man made traditions. And this was something that was instituted by the Lord through Moses, and so he was going to honor it. Perhaps also Jesus didn't want Peter to have to go back on his word. That he had already committed Jesus to paying the tax. He you know was kind of voluntold already. Uh, yeah, he pays the tax uh, before he even asked. Uh, we can't say for sure why the change, but I do think it's important to note the example that Jesus left for us in this situation. Jesus teaches us in this event that there are times that we may have the right to do something, but for the better of others and so that we don't cause offense, we must be willing to relinquish that right in certain situations. You know, that's, that's what Paul teaches us as well. As we look at First Corinthians uh, chapter 10, verse 23 and 24, he writes, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but not all things edify. That word edify is in regards to building up of the body of Christ. Not everything builds up and helps everybody else. And so verse 24 says, Let no one seek his own, but each one the other's well-being. As Christians, we are in Christ, but we cannot allow our liberties to become stumbling blocks to our sisters and brothers in Christ. And at times, we need to be willing to set aside some of those liberties for the conscience of those around us. Okay? And really, that's what all of Romans chapter 14, if you guys want to read more about this, the subject, you read Romans 14, that's what it's talking about. The liberties that we have and how we exercise them, how we use them, we're free to do it, but we also want to keep in mind those around us and realize that, hey, if this is going to cause my brother or my sister to stumble, I'm not going to do it for their sake, even though I have the right to, even though I'm free to do whatever I want. I I can do that, but because of the people around me and because I don't want to cause them to stumble, maybe this is an area of life where they have struggled. And so my liberty becomes something for them that it's a stumbling block for them. And so we take that into consideration. We need to be willing to do that from time to time. We need to be willing to take the high road. And even though we may have every right to do something, we need to be willing to relinquish that right for the greater good. That that you wouldn't cause anyone to stumble, that you wouldn't allow your witness in Christ to come into question as people are like, oh, I saw someone doing this or doing that. And you know, they didn't Jesus didn't pay the temple tax. What do you mean? Why why didn't he pay the temple tax? And he just said, Hey, so that we don't offend them, go ahead and pay the temple tax. Okay, I have the position. Positionally, I can sing right here, and I, you know, I don't have to pay it. But I'm going to go ahead and pay it, anyways. I'm going to relinquish that right that I have, that position that I have, so that I might not offend other people, and, and so that everything kind of just works out for the better. And I think sometimes we can we can champion our liberties to the point where we cause our brothers and sisters to fail and to, to stumble, and we ought to be careful about that. And I want to encourage you guys to be mindful of that. Okay. Uh, very cool. He he says he considered the the ramifications of such an action of not paying the tax. He decided it was better to just go ahead, pay the tax and times, we're already past time, so it's just a cool way, and we won't get into it, but Peter to pay the tax as well, uh, he tells Peter, go do something that he loves, go go do some fishing, you know, Jesus was, a, or Peter was a fisherman, you know, go do some fishing, the first fish that you find, pull it up, and it'll have enough money in its mouth to to pay for you and me, and uh, God just provides some good lessons there as well for us, but we're out of time, okay, so we want to pray, uh, closing prayer, yeah, We're closing in prayer, and I want to encourage you guys uh, to uh, hang out with us afterwards. We're going to be, you know, quickly kind of heading out from here. I know usually we would like to hang out and fellowship and talk, but we want to try and move the party from here over onto base, and so I want to encourage you guys uh, to come hang out with us uh, this afternoon. Let's pray.